Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Foundation and Podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for Foundation on Apple TV+. This week, we're covering Season 1, Episode 1, The Emperor's Peace, and Episode 2, Preparing to Live. Respect and enjoy the podcast. All right, Aaron, before we get started here, um, I want to hear what you think about the episodes, but I also want to know, for people who might be new to Bald Move and haven't listened to us before, I want to know who the hell you are and what your relationship with Foundation is. Well, as you said, my name's Aaron, and uh, I first read the Foundation series back in junior high and high school, and I have read the main sequence of the, the, the Foundation series but I have not read any of the prequels or the sequels that were written in like the, the later part of the eighties. Um, and I still like, I still remember a good deal of the main plot and uh, the characters, but it's also been a little hazy. I haven't read this since I was a teenager. So it's been 20, 30 years at best. Uh, and I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little bit hazy, um, but I'm not completely going in here blind. How, how about you, Jim? Uh, as you said, I'm Jim. Uh, and I read the series about 20 or 30 days ago, uh, not actually the whole series either. Uh, a couple of months ago, I picked up foundation audiobook and listened through that and was pretty surprised. Um, pretty bummed out that I hadn't picked it up before because it was so good. Uh, and I think as a teenager, that would have been really compelling to me, but here I am, you know, as a 39 year old man checking out the books for the first time and really liking them. And then we're back. We're back to the series. Let's talk about that for a minute. Well, I do want to say, because I think one question a, a listener might have in their mind is, oh, my God, these guys have read the books. Some someone one more recently, someone read more oh, along yeah. the way. Oh, my God, it's going to be one of those podcasts where they're always comparing, you know, and saying eh, this isn't as good and spoiling me for other things. Um, if you're that's a valid concern, because I know a lot of podcasts kind of do that. But like we have done this several times uh with the walking dead podcast you know we had both read the comics far in advance of where that series had been to points uh we've done the expanse where you've read the books in advance did the game of thrones where i'd read the books in it. we we're pretty good we're pretty good at separating what we know from you like we might have at the end of the podcast like uh, a discussion um mm. about the books versus the series or we might have some speculation about how we think uh, what we know about the series is going to shape the books, but we're always going to mark that really well um, in case there are spoilers for people to want to main, remain absolutely pure. So, uh, you know, you, you, you can respect and enjoy the podcast is what I'm saying. Yeah. All right. Now, what do you think of these first two episodes? I was nervous because I've, I've obviously if you listen to a preview episode, uh, I was very excited. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And then Friday or no, uh, I guess Thursday night, I think it was, I saw Alan Seppenwall released at the embargo, his review of the whole series. He's seen the first 10 episodes mm-hmm. and he kind of shat on it. I mean, he didn't shit on it, but mm-hmm. he, he it, it, was, it was getting a mediocre rating. It was two, like two, two and a half stars out of five possible, mm-hmm. which 
is usually the type of ratings on stuff that I, I don't I don't engage with. So I started getting really nervous because uh, I respect Alan Supperwell. He's my favorite TV critic by far. We very rarely disagree, but we do occasionally disagree. We don't see eye to eye. I think that he was notoriously um, pretty blind to the brilliance of True Detective season one. I think he was slow to really get and, and engage with the leftovers, um, although he eventually came around, I, th- I think, on, on both of those. So I was kind of like, there's a couple points, I think, in the second episode, especially where I'm like, oh, man, maybe this is just just jointed and all over the place. But they're always resolved at like, oh, they're running a simulation. That's why we uh, and I, I is just my kind of fears. I actually thought the first two episodes were great. Like it was recognizably the plot I remember from reading the books, all the main beats, but so much richer. Like, yeah. Gale gets so much more development in this first two episodes than they do in the in, in the entire book series, as far as I can remember. Um, and, you know, just having someone like Jared Harris play uh, Harry Seldon is such a boon because he brings so much gravitas and also kind of approachability and warmth um, that it does a lot of heavy lifting. It's just like Lee Lee Pace brings a lot of imperiousness to the role of him like like just yeah. him being him brings a lot sure. to that role and my god some of the special effects yeah some of the design work it's i i thought i thought these first two episodes are really gripping and mysterious appropriately mysterious like the way they're doing some of the time jumps is like a little bit of a spoiler or a tease to some of the mysteries that are probably laying later on i i thought were great and i i I also don't think that there's many opportunities for people new to the series to get lost. Like they explained everything. Like what is psycho history? Mm-hmm. What is the state of the Imperium? I, I, I felt like all that stuff, uh, maybe concepts like this, like people, I don't know if people got the whole star bridge um, and what that meant, but I was really excited. I've never seen a space elevator depicted in visual fiction before. And yeah. uh, like, like I've, I've also remember reading, um, some proposal. Well, I don't want to get too far. What did, what did you think of that? This, uh, these two episodes? Uh, I largely agree with you. I think, uh, from an artistic standpoint, this is a resounding success. It looks like nothing else on television. It looks better than 99% of anything I've ever seen. Uh, both, you know, in, in, uh, visualizing like conceptual stuff, like jump drives in an interesting way. Um, and also just in like its polish, right? Uh, it, 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 there, there is CG all over this thing, but it never feels like it. Oh yeah. Uh, and I don't know if that comes down to the art deco stylings that sort of make it feel grounded in a weird way or what, but yeah, I always felt like absorbed into the universe that it was portraying, uh, based on the visuals. And I think the storytelling is is the thing that I was most concerned about with this um, adaptation because the novels are very, very dry, extremely dry. Like, I mm. couldn't tell you a character that had a personal moment in the entire first book. And the show is trying to do a little bit more with personalizing these stories, um, making characters that you can get caught up in the lives of, right? And, and emotionally right. connected to. Uh, I think it's did. I think it's like the weakest part of the show because that's not what the books are. Um, but, but I don't think it's the weakest part because it's not what the books do. I think it's the weakest part because they had to do so much heavy lifting there 
for me to to start to care about these characters that i don't know i i felt like a little out of touch with them even with the work they were doing but i will say you know as far as taking these gigantic concepts and putting people in the center of them i think it's doing a respectable job it's about as good of an adaptation as i could possibly imagine so far yeah i know i know i know a lot of things felt rushed and like in particular the relationship between uh gale and Raish, like in fact when i watched it through the second the when i first watched the second episode i was kind of shocked that we just jumped to them being in a relationship like well i guess they've been you know who knows they could have been floating for a year two years who knows um, they're young people. They're both very attractive. Um, I'm, you know, that shit happens all the time, right? So I don't need my handheld. I don't need to see their first, t- right? So sure, but it is unusual because they're having to tell such a big story that they don't like. You know, it would be more effective if they took the time to really develop those characters and the relationship instead of doing it all in essentially two hours of television. But they like Harry Seldon don't have the time. Yeah. Most shows it's, do it's, have that time. Right. Cause that's what they're about. Right. But this show is about right. something bigger. And so it's hard to, to get right. that stuff to connect quite as well as other shows. And I think that might be why seven wall had a bit of a problem with it. Cause he's used to those small, the smaller stories that you tell on television where you really connect strongly to the main characters. I think, you know, that might get in the way of enjoying something that's bigger like this. And hopefully as we see the show play out in what I hear is supposed to be an eight season run, if it gets the full run, um, we'll start to connect not just with these characters on the small scale, but with the foundation and with like the overall narrative of this empire. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like when I heard eight seasons, I still think that's a lot, but I also remember very clearly when I first started thinking about the expanse, or I, I became aware of the expanse and I was like at the, uh, you know, like, uh, going through like a good portion of season one, I remember thinking, how the hell is this a nine book series? Like Jesus, like what, you know, how, and then they like kicked the lid off with the proto molecule. And yeah. then like they keep like, and, and that like is even just the beginning of like, and and I think people might be like, well, how is the cycle of history going to hold up to like eight seasons? But the thing is, it's like there's a lot of crucial things about psycho history that you learn along the way that like throw, you know, curveballs into it. And the question is, was Harry smart um, and, and insightful enough into the math to anticipate those? And how do you how do you anticipate things that you can you know, by design, not know. Like, uh, it reminds me of like during the Gulf Wars where Donald Rumsfeld would say, you know, you got your knowns, you got your known unknowns, you got your unknown unknowns, like the thing, you know, and this series plays a lot with that, you mm-hmm. know, like what can fuck up psychohistory? If psychohistory, your predict- predictions get, you know, start to drift, how to get things back on track. In fact, I think they don't uh, declare them, but I think we might have seen a few of those happen in this, these two episodes. Um, and then psychohistory plays at a lot of larger concepts, right, that they're introducing here. Like the idea of what is truth, um, the idea of faith in institutions versus faith in uh let's call it faith in science uh there's a lot of big questions that are being bandied about in these first two episodes that i assume they're going to delve into a lot more 
And I'm, I'm super interested to see how they develop psychohistory. Because, like I said, I've only read the first novel. So that novel goes about 80 years into the story. This yeah. story must span a lot more time than that. Um, so, I, yeah, I'm curious to see how this all plays out because I don't even really know. And that, that's the one thing that really irked me about Sepinwall's review is he's like, you know, even when he's giving credit to the visuals, which, again, we're going to talk about this more um, uh, here in a minute. But in 4K, oh, my God, these things look so good. Dude, but he's like, ah, uh, you know, this transport looks like Luke's space space speeder. And this thing looks like a space station from Star Trek. And I'm like, damn, Asimov literally invented the concept of the geosynchronous satellite and galactic empires and all these <laughs> other things that like Star Wars heavily bid on. Like uh, it's right. also you can see a lot of like the, you know, influence in uh, in Frank Herbert's Dune and the, mm. the, the accusative like copying like what? It's adapting I, it, source it, material it, that invented it. Yeah, it's tough. Right. I'm sorry. There's only so many ways to visualize a hover space car and an right. object that would inhabit. But like even then they are like you said, with that jump drive stuff. Maybe this is yeah. a good time to just talk about because uh, I want to talk about some of the, the just artistry. Um, I want to talk about the characters, the themes and concepts. And then maybe we can talk about some differences between books and show. Let's start about um, let's start talking about the the artistry, because it's clear to me that Amazon really spared no expense. Amazon probably to, would have spent twice I'm as sorry. much, but Apple spared no expense. Uh, apologies debate. No, I don't apologize. No. Uh, yeah, yeah. Apple didn't like you can see the budget on the screen. Like yeah. it's just amazingly crisp and it's in the endlessly inventive in the costuming and the, the wardrobes or anything in particular that stuck out to you. Uh, yeah. I mean, let's talk about the jump drive because that was easily the coolest thing I saw and I've never quite seen anything like it. I've seen a lot of hyperspace. Uh, you want to talk about star Wars. You see a lot of uh, lines blurring off into the horizon into nothing. This was different. This was a ship creating what I assume is a wormhole, a gravitational tunnel out to a different part of space. And it it looked amazing. I, I kept wondering, like, what what is what is it going to do? Like, OK, I, I've seen stuff like this in contact a little bit, right? With the spinning rings around the. Yeah. The center with the or human inside. Interstellar, Interstellar had a little bit of that with just the concept of the gate and the the what was the gar- gargantuan I forget what the name of the giant black hole is but like it looks like it spawned a black hole in the middle of this ship folded space around it and then fucking took off in one direction yeah. uh, and it's entry and exit into I guess hyperspace or wormhole space or whatever is just so fucking cool and I've never ever seen anything like that before and it's paired with also their depiction of a stasis pod, um, which mm-hmm. I've seen depicted hundreds of times, right? In mm-hmm. many different ways. Uh, the one that springs to mind immediately is Alien. I don't know why we watched that recently. Uh, mm-hmm. But Aliens did that. And this is a really cool visualization of it. It's got some kind of mesh that, in, that encompasses someone in... It almost looks like a, like a carbonite kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Except made of mesh. Right. It, I, I was a little curious about how the stasis field goes wrong. And when you, you know, wake up in the middle of it, they talk about how your mind and your body can diverge a bit. But I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. I assume at some point in the future, we'll know more about that because that's exactly what happens to uh, 
Gal? Gail? Gail. <sighs> I'm sorry. I listened to the audiobook version of that first novel, and they call her Gal in that. I th- it's just cool. Like, I, you know, I've seen black holes have only recently been depicted, I guess, as we understand, you know, by scientific principles. If you can actually see what these look like, here's, here's what it would look like. You know, you got this big. Um, and the, the, it just, it also just demonstrates, I guess, I, I we mentioned in the, um, the preview, how they really blur in some of these works, you're going to see the line between magic and technology blurred. And I think these like mesh suits, the shrouding, the black, like how the hell did they do it? You don't know, but this is demonstrates the power that the empire can command that they can for purposes of essentially recreational travel. I mean, I get the idea. This is first class travel as yeah. opposed to the slow, slow boats to terminus and all that stuff, which are still faster than light. But like, it just gives you an idea of how fucking powerful and how much hubris a society would have when they can master all these elemental forces forces. And, uh, it also makes you wonder. I mean, this is the big, bigger picture things about like, uh, how is there scarcity and want in this galaxy? You know, like if you can just generate a black hole for travel, presumably, probably to generate power, like how the hell are there like have not systems out there that are running around wanting to foster rebellions against you? Well, because you've um, got the empire, right? And we'll, we'll talk about the hubris, right? Right. Pretty right. soon. But I, I love, um, I love that depiction. I love the idea of a star bridge, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's just really cool. I I think like this is the first space elevator I've seen depicted in any, uh, let's say, moving visual medium. I'm sure it's been in comics yes. and stuff, but it, it was very impressive. It's not even... You don't even see the concept of the space elevator depicted in written fiction. Do you want... Because I, I, since it is such a new concept... Um, it's not a new concept. They've been talking about it for 34 years. And this years. is not part of that magical stuff, right? This is part of the stuff that we think, you know, if, well, it is because we don't have the material science to do it, but we know yeah. that it could be done if we did have the materials. So, so do you want to it. describe the concept of a space elevator and why it's so cool? I, I think I understand it. Um, as I understand it, it is essentially a uh, satellite that is attached to the earth via a long ass cable. In this case, um, mm-hmm. You know, it looks like it's a whole ass structure, right? It's not just mm-hmm. a cable that you ride up. It's not like not like a cable car. Um, yeah, I've always seen it described as like a, a, a like a strong car or like carbon nanotube uh, tether or something that. Yeah, and, and when you but, think but, about it, you're like, oh, that'd be like the size of my arm. No, it'd probably be more like the size of a skyscraper. What's depicted here, right? Where right, 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 right. To get the tensile strength, but then. Especially you know, you when we're 15, I think we're 12,000 years into humanity's future at a minimum. That's how long the empire has lasted. So hmm. you're talking like we are maybe a couple hundred years away from even attempting a space elevator. So they've they got a space tower cable, but it's still it's still a flexible system. So anyway, and, and so, the reason so do this, this is useful is because you can escape Earth's orbit um, or Earth's atmosphere with a lot less power, right? You don't need rockets that are, that are firing you up against the, the draw of gravity. You can pull yourself up along this cable, I guess. And uh, if with the cable sufficient length attached to the Earth's equator, it essentially just gr- like, like a pitcher's arm, uh, when something at the top is let go, it can just launch things. Like, you know, you could yeah. so much cheaper get into the travel all throughout the solar system because you'd have a lot of inertia and velocity. You wouldn't have to spend all that power getting out of Earth's, the steepest part of Earth's gravity well, and as you say, the atmosphere. Um, 
But I even remember early like papers talking about the concept. They said, you know, one of there's like it's like, uh, you know, um, one of the real risks is uh, if like uh, this, the, the structure would be uh, the tether ever breaks, you know, depending like if it breaks at the base, it would do it. I've heard if it breaks at the base, it'd be just like weird kind of like was wobbling chain just just score gouging all over the earth. But if it severs closer up that cable um the, the the like the optimal length of a of a, a space elevator uh that i was reading about like if it ever fell to the earth it would wrap around the planet several times which and isn't that exactly be, what happens in the show and it would get faster and faster like it like right. like a cracking a whip the last bits of those chains would be hitting the earth at like supersonic speeds and you can see like there's a line where he's like that the uh the space bridge is encircling our planet like a garret yeah like and, and it gouges like what was it 50 layers deep into this coruscant like city structure is called the was, scar that was so cool the scar is beautiful and terrifying and mm-hmm. like again not only have i never seen that realized in concept but like the destruction and having it seemed like it, it it like like obviously that's not a concept in foundation um i don't think asimov ever ever, ever dreamed of a space elevator in his lifetime but it's cool to see that these guys are hardcore science fiction nerds and have done their research on the concept and how much damage you can do with a terrorist attack to one if you don't respect the piece. Yeah, that's, um, that's the thing about the Foundation novels. They're written in, in the 40s, the original ones. And it's like it, the height of its uh, technology is essentially nuclear engines, right? Um, nuclear and reactions. And I mean, that that could be useful for some things, but it it certainly doesn't get you. I, yeah, at least not at the scale he was talking about to things like black holes. There's also other things like it's like small things like Harry puts his hand through this act of glass, like in, instead of opening like a bookcase, it just kind of like opens around his hand to retrieve something. I thought that was cool. The, the emperor's different personal shields. Um, yeah, that, that is Those demonstrated, gold, gold I think, collars. in the second episode. Yep. Yep. I thought that was and I don't know how impervious those are. I'm I'm sure we'll find out before the series is over. Uh, that's not like me knowing anything. I'm just saying that it seems like. Yeah, because uh, that's the other thing is these imp- this concept of the emperor. I believe the emperor in the book was called uh, Emperor Cleon, but he's a very minor figure yeah. um, because he's like, in like the whole two point chapters is this, in the first of the book and he's gone. Especially as essentially revolving around uh, Harry's trial, which happens pretty much exactly how it does in this show, uh-huh. I think. But um but this is like now that you've got this genetic dynasty which i thought is a cool idea um it doesn't really have anything to do with the artistry maybe we can save that for the characters um i also liked uh the costuming yeah i felt like it's very hard to imagine future um fashion because like just look 400 years ago and see what people were getting up to in europe the tights and the plumes feather and the ruffled sleeves and like you know uh, that how would you ever imagine a suit or a bikini from those times right mm-hmm. but like um like gail's planet living in these like cabbage patch uh you, you, you know, translucent get-ups uh all the imperial citizens had kind of distinct looks depending on what world they came from i thought the emperors uh all being dressed as like dusk and dawn and and the day I thought all that stuff was real was really cool and distinctive. There's a few things where like I thought some of uh, Raisha's outfits got almost into like was it Rufio from Hook <laughs> sure. kind of territory? Yeah, like very asymmetrical and 
Yeah, uh, but but like you know, sometimes uh, fashions like that. You know, every mm-hmm. every once in a while you get bell bottoms and shit that don't don't look right. But I thought the the attention to detail in the costuming was because it even you could kind of tell by looking the future lawyers, you know, and the diplomats and like the businessmen. Yeah. They're kinda, but but also like that's nothing like what they would wear today. I thought that stuff was was really cool. Uh, let's talk about the intro, which is very cool um it gives me so so one well let's talk about it hand in hand with sort of this uh mural that they're painting what what do they call the stuff that they're painting this mural with there's some kind of like ability for it to morph and move and change active chroma is what they call it active chroma um and i get that same impression from the intro as well right like Things are built of the sands of time almost, right? There, there's a. It's fitting that they use this for a mural depicting all the different events in the galactic or the imperial timeline because it, you, you get a sort of sands of time vibe. You get a like e- Egyptian sort of permanence of power yeah. kind of vibe from the opening of this um, where mm-hmm. they're showing a lot of like you know, faces that are like carved of stone, but made up of all these grains of sand. And right. It, it, it evokes like the emotion of some immovable, uh, power. And I really love that. And also just like they tie it into the universe as a whole, right? Like the galaxy that this empire is in is also there in the background and it's the truly unmovable thing, right? It's the, the ultimate power in the galaxy is the galaxy itself kind of stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really cool. Well, I loved it. You, you, you mentioned that the Egyptian and I got the same thing. I'm like, this reminds me a lot of the like Prince of Egypt sequence where Moses is discovering the dark past of the Israelis uh, and, and, uh, and Egyptian relations, or at least the biblical biblical version of that history. Mm-hmm. And like all the hieroglyphics are kind of merging and shifting and moving along the walls. But you can't think of Egyptian hieroglyphs, or at least I can't, and especially in the context of this story, without thinking of the Ozymandias poem about sure. like this guy who's had these monuments carved in his name, and you know, like they're half buried in the sand, and then they're inscribed like "Gaze upon my works, ye mighty in despair," even though this thing's in ruins. Right, and you can't. There's so much of that illusion too, like the space elevator pointedly destroys one of the many golden effigies of the empire. Which yeah. I like the way they refi- re- referred to the emperor in total as empire, like he is yeah. the empire. Um, so I got big Ozymandias in- energy from some of this stuff. Again, that theme of like hubris makes a ton of sense. The music is is okay in this intro. I'm not a fan of of weak melodies in my intros. I like very strong mm-hmm. uh, melodies with repetition and stuff. But like, it, this is okay. Yeah, I'm wondering because like there's a lot of stuff I recognize, obviously, in the uh, the introduction, like the the slave one looking jump ships, you know, yeah, uh, the Imperial cruisers. We see one of the the uh, Emperor Dusk take one of those to the scar. Mm-hmm. These unbroken chain of emperors are kind of like blowing away in the sand. But then we see this huge robe statue. We see this like angel monument. Um this filigreed version of uh, Harry's uh, Tesseract that he calls the, what is that thing called? Uh, the pr- Prime? Prime Radiant. Radiant, yes. 
the prime radiant uh i thought that stuff was all cool and obviously like i'm thinking that that big uh hooded robed statue and the angel monument kind of thing are going to be um i don't know some kind of transitional governments or structures or movements that come out of all this because um i'm expecting that a lot like if the empire falls and it's going to be fallen for a thousand years what are the forces that are um, number one like who are the ones that attacked it doesn't seem like it was the official governments of these uh to uh you know border worlds or outer rim worlds um you know what what are these factions that are they're going to war with each other and maybe those are representations of those different movements and stuff but we'll probably figure out as the the series goes on one of the other things i love about the very strong visual motif they're developing is how it ties into the prime radiant as you mentioned because that is as we find out in these first two episodes the representation uh, mathematically of Harry Seldon's teachings of psychohistory, right? It's like these are the equations that if you can view these kind of like watching, you know, tech code scrolling down a matrix screen, if you're trained in it, you can decipher it and you can understand it. Um, and I think like in so much as mathematics is simply a way to describe the universe it really ties in strongly with that sand motif comprising the universe, right? And the particles that, that all this is made up, the, the stardust, right? All of it is math in a certain, in a certain point of view. And so I, I think like the motif they're developing with that sand stuff and these moving particles is really, really strong. And I, I really liked it. I also like that, like, you know, we've seen in recent years, um, you know, devs is a prime example of this concept of being able to predict, um, you know, a deterministic universe. Because, like, if you could model every particle down to the subatomic levels in the universe, you would need you you could maybe I don't know, depending on how you understand uncertainty, maybe you could just like literally rewind and fast forward time and predict whatever you want. A lot of people say that, you know, some of the uncertainty and the underlying fabric of the universe would preclude that from happening. And also, you know, you would need more particles in the known universe to construct your machine to model it. Then, so like you've, you, you got some problems with this concept. Yeah, I like this. This psycho history, I think, is my favorite version of this thing where it's like it's more of a probability matrix that like you can kind of extrapolate baseline human humans behavior and what they'll do not individually but over larger mm-hmm. populations and when you get to populations the size of you know what eight trillion citizens of of the empire the 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 shit can't it gets more and more rock solid but that raises questions of like you know how big is the population of terminus going to be can you correctly uh you know when you need to like macro predict the survival of one single colony is that as useful I thought uh, the, the way they expressed that and kind of like brought those concepts to life, we'll probably talk more into the, the concept portion, but uh, I thought that was great. Um, the other things I thought were really great from artistry is like the little dwarf planet research lab. Uh, that was really cool. Like, it looked amazing in 4K. I liked uh, the uh, and maybe is there anything that, that didn't quite work for you? Because I thought there was a couple things like I wasn't sure how I felt about the gold praetorian guard looking soldiers like they looked i thought kind of goofy to me where Um, were they 
They were like escorting the coffins um, through okay. the spaceport, yeah, yeah. and they were like usually in attendance around the emperor. I think because you also see later like rank and file soldiers, and they're looking a lot more futuristic bodyguard. Like, so I think these mm-hmm. guys are just like the look impressive, not to actually be impressive. But I thought that they just, I don't know, their design just looked a little too Liberace um, uh, meets uh, 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 Stargate to me. Okay. But uh, I also, yeah, I, I mean, also thought, most of it is based on Art Deco stuff, right? So you're going to have a lot of, yeah, sort of interesting looking stuff. Yeah. Uh, I also thought the null field visualization was a little weak. But again, I also don't know how you, vi- you portray something that is just a field that repulses all level- living things somehow. Um, so you know, I don't know. Maybe I, I'll give him one on that. It's hilarious to me because I, I was thinking about the sci fi concepts. Uh, in this world and in relation to the null field it's clearly got to be some kind of gravity based thing right they're punching wormholes mm. into the fabric of space time uh, that's gravity be, yeah. based I'm sure it, it, the the time when it really struck home to me that they have mastered gravity and control thereof is when I saw uh, Gale swimming in a pool that was on a spaceship that was not thrusting in the direction of the top of the pool. And I was like, oh, they have some way to control like inertial dampeners, whatever it is, like in Star Trek, some way to control the gravity that keeps the water in the pool from a different angle than Mm -hmm. the thrust is providing. So like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know why that's when it clicked with me when they have already got wormholes and, you know, uh, gravitic fields probably keeping you away from the vault. So. Yeah, space swimming pools is how you uh, impress upon Jim Jones your galaxy-spanning te- uh, techno-empire credentials. Wormholes for your engines? Nah, get the... I've seen Romulans do that in Star Trek. <laughs> Come on, that's not... That's only 400 years in the future. Yeah. Uh, the bastard offshoots of the Vulcans can, can, can come up with that. Uh, so there's also other stuff with the artistry here, like the landscapes um, and just the cinematography itself, right? Outside of the effects, I think... They must have been filming where they filmed season four, The Expanse or something, because these like, I don't know, uh, Icelandic volcano hellscape type planets that they're doing at the very Mm. beginning uh, for Terminus very much reminded me of those places. Um, They have, you know, the very CG heavy essentially Coruscant right uh, if you if you want to talk about who ripped off who well Coruscant in Star Trek is just mm-hmm. uh, Trantor, Trantor in mm-hmm. this so uh, that was really cool to see and the depiction of it too was interesting it's got sort of I guess screens in the underground levels to fake a night uh, well we saw it as a nighttime sky but I assume they could do any time of day um, sure that's something that I haven't seen depicted in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was all very cool. And then you've got, you know, the literal there with the visuals here. They're literally separating the classes into the upper classes. The mm-hmm. people living kind of on the surface of this massive city who see a real sky, who breathe real fresh air. And then you've got the underclasses, which are literally beneath them. Right. Mm-hmm. Literally. You couldn't take the metaphor any closer. Uh, to a literal depiction here. Um, yeah, I thought that yeah. stuff is really cool and it looks very neat. 
uh, separated by literal glass ceilings that can't be penetrated. Right. Uh, uh, as far as the landscapes, I, I agree with everything you said, except for I thought the Terminus landscape, the one flaw was where they showed the ocean. I thought there's clearly some fuckery going on in the water, but oh, I'm not maybe. sure if that's supposed to be water. Because I remember I saw a video game that was depicting some kind of planetary ocean and it looked unnatural. And I remember thinking like, Jesus Christ, it's 2020, you know, 2019 or whatever that I can't I've seen better water than this. And then I read in the the game design notes that actually on this planet, the oceans are made out of hydrocarbons, like essentially get in it that those would flow and the waves would look different and stuff. So I was like, ah, fuck, maybe these oil, these things are made out of, like you said, ammonia. Because uh, there's some kind of weird crystalline structure that's forming, and maybe it's ice, or maybe it's just hmm. like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. But like the boundary layer between that looked fudged, and in a way that, again, everything else is so crisp. I thought the null fields and that stuff um, were the ones, the digital effects that kind of didn't stand out uh, or did, didn't look right. Everything else, like it, they do a good job of like um, not making the technology look like. Like like when you see the inside of this robot um, figure, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll talk about later. Like, I there's no recognizable. Like, you don't see pistons or circuit boards, or it looks like some organic mesh that's got some kind of power system with or. But like, who the fuck isn't? She just kind of spray paints over her wound. Like it's it is. It's, it's you'd look at that and you'd say that's magic. That's magic. That doesn't under that doesn't that's not governed by any scientific principles that, that I understand or realize. Yeah. Um. Do you want to move on to talking about the, the, the themes? Yeah, for sure. All right, let's uh, take a quick break and we'll get right back and talk about that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints... Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. 
Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Okay, Jim, uh, we've talked a lot about psychohistory so far. Is there anything else we need to kind of like um, plumb those depths? Because... I think the show does a pretty good job of explaining the science of it, the quote unquote science. Yeah. Um, I think the most interesting thing that they do with it at the beginning is set it up as a uh, way to tell macro future, but not micro future. Um, you know, as, as Harry says in the trial, I can't really tell what you're going to have for dinner, you know, but I can predict that the empire is going to fall in 500 years. Um, it, and and by doing that, they set up a tension with uh, Gail as to whether or not she's going to back Harry, right? Um, whether or not this character is is willing to go along with these macro predictions that may or may not happen. I mean, they're 500 years from knowing, right? Uh, mm. But if she looks at the formulas, like, will she, will she uh, tell him? And you don't know because Harry couldn't have predicted her actions. He couldn't have said, I'll bring in Gail and she will 100% back me on this and the Emperor will do this because I've predicted everyone's movements down to the nth degree. No, he just knows the macro. And so there's a big tension about whether or not she's going to come in here and lie for the Empire or follow the science. And I thought that was interesting. And it, and not and not just uh, the psychohistory doesn't just break down between large scale and smart and small scale because um, there's always a probability. He's like, you know, like yeah. uh, there's a non-zero uh, chance that you won't be arrested, but it's really not worth talking about. But clearly other things kind of worry him. Um, and I like the way that they made psychohistory cool. Like it feels like Ocean's Eleven, you know, where mm-hmm. it's like when the Empire comes, I'm like, oh, OK, well, let's just set your foundation. We're going to put you on a slow boat to the outer edge of the universe far away from us. So you can just essentially be cut off. And that was a defeat that felt like a defeat until you start realizing Harry knows an awful lot about this backwater planet. And Gail realizes, oh, my God, this was all part of your plan. But then in the second yeah. episode, he reveals that like what wasn't part of his plan was he assumed, I think, that the emperor was going to execute him personally and then exile his followers to get to get rid of them. But what happened is that he got exiled with them and we can already see that there is a weird blend of like over familiarity with the Wizard of Oz. Like, you know, people are no longer calling him Dr. Selden. He's just Harry. But then some are kind of deifying him, mm-hmm. saying he can do no wrong, putting ultimate stock in whatever he says. I'm guessing because, you know, again, Harry, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say this. I'm guessing that uh, Raish, you know, that they also, you know, we'll talk about him as his character in, in depth more. Um, but I'm, I'm guessing that he murdered Harry as a way to, you know, move that bead back to the right side of the Abacus. I mean, for whatever reason, uh, Harry thought that his weird variable in the equation was going to destabilize everything. So he had to be taken off the board. 
Um, at least that's that's what my prediction is. Now, what what they're doing with the escape pod at the end with Gale and all that stuff, I'm very I I have no fucking clue. That was uh, Harry dying in the second episode. I assumed he was going to die early in the season, but the second episode was kind of shocking. And uh, also, yeah, the thing with what happened to Gale and Raish was was pretty, pretty wild to me, too. I didn't know that we'd ever see it. I don't recall. And I read this pretty recently. Us ever seeing Harry die. We just kind of jump forward and we're on Terminus and the, the colony is set up and they're doing things. But I, I don't know that we ever see this part. So all this feels new and fresh to me. And, you know, it's part of that more personal story, but it could be, like you said, also part of the larger story, right? This isn't necessarily a story of betrayal by one of his, you know, disgruntled acolytes. This could be mm-hmm. all part of the hairy plan. And I think it's super interesting to see what happens if, if Harry has to go to those links to control the spin out of, of psycho history, right? While he's alive. Mm-hmm. Well, he's kind of played that card and how mm-hmm. does he control psycho history going forward after his death? And I think that is going to be a fascinating part of this show. If that's where they're taking it. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is like, there's always a con there again, since we're talking about probability probabilities, we're not talking about certainties. We're talking about things being suboptimal or optimal. So like just because something's the optimal action doesn't mean you should do it now because like as he mentioned there's an optimal time to bring Gale to force the trial to do that there's a, probably an optimal time for him to be dead probably before the ship left that doesn't mean all is lost it just means like th- these are scales like this the the, the the that are constantly shifting and if one side gets unbalanced that means you might have to put a, a little pebble on the other side to to rebalance it it's not m- more like oh fuck our this is not like um a big carefully orchestrated plan step a step b step b it's much more organic and like i said probability based than that and i think that that is coming through the show and it's really exciting i'm in i think that's going to be a lot of uh interesting things to look forward into the future episodes and seasons to see how that stuff like you said how how do you well if you're dead and gone and you're the architect of all this how do you make sure the people building the thing stay on the plan Right. Um, when you're talking about time spans of a thousand years, which is what he hoped to reduce this to, right? The the chaos to. Yeah. Um I, I don't know. It's gonna be fascinating. I, I think also maybe we should talk about psychohistory in its prediction, right? Because this is another thematic element of the show. And I think it's one that is super relevant today. Um when you're t- looking at climate change, you're looking at Trusting science um, and and mm-hmm. figuring out what the future is going to be before it happens, and maybe averting the worst of it. Boy, we're living through that. Um, and I can't help but no- think that the people writing the show know that the people writing the show have that stuff in mind when they're creating this show. Uh, because psychohistory's prediction is that the empire will fall. It doesn't say how it'll fall, right? But if you look at the empire as our world, um, the empire will crumble in 500 years and there will be a period of 30,000 years of essentially dark ages um, where everything will be terrible. There will be constant wars. Everyone will be scrounging for scraps. And then 10,000 worlds reduced to a cinder, you know, it's a horrific shit. And psychohistory, 
his aim with psychohistory is not to avert that disaster because he says it's impossible, but to reduce the length of time that that's that's true, the Dark Age down to about a thousand years. Um, and I think that's kind of where we're at with climate change, right? We're not looking. We we can't avert some of the things we're already seeing, like fires and droughts and and floods and all mm-hmm. kinds of things, storms. But we do need to do what we can. We still have a chance to avert some of the worst of it. I think right. that's going to be big going forward, right? Mm-hmm. I think so, too. But again, it's a it's a clear parallel between I mean, they're explicitly making it, I think, in the case of Gale's planet. Yes. Where, you know, they had a, a bunch of people that their scientists tried to warn about the impending cataclysm to happen to their planet. And they were murdered for uh uh their temerity to tell people what they didn't want to hear. And then yet we clearly Gail's planet is it happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah everything's underwater. Their fucking landing platforms are underwater. Everything's underwater. Yeah. They're fucking Gungans now. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> it, I, and yet the reaction of the society seems to have been to double down on that. And that's the infuriating thing to me that, but, but it feels so true to life, right? It's like, well, Clearly, everything you predicted was true and correct, and we were wrong for denying it, but we're not going to be wrong, so fuck you, we're just going to double down. That's the attitude I see in a lot of this stuff, and I don't know if they're, how deep they're going to go on that stuff um, as we get closer to the fall of the Empire. I, I assume this show is going to span the 500 years, the 1,000 years, the 30,000 years, whatever, um, yeah. if it gets to, the, to completion to Season 8. As we get closer to the events, actually unraveling the empire i do wonder what the reaction of the people will be to to seeing that zeldon's predictions sorry zeldon selden's predictions were all accurate or yeah, maybe they won't be i don't know but it, it's it's opposite of a lot of puzzle because this is kind of a puzzle box show um you know a lot of puzzle box sh- uh, shows begin with like a crisis and then you have to understand what caused the crisis and all that stuff this yeah. is about like there is a crisis we know it's going to happen are the heroes going to succeed not in diverting it, but into, like you said, lessening the impact and, and gentling the landing and shortening the period of pain. Um, so it's a kind of an upside down uh, approach to the, the storytelling. Um, and I'll, so we can continue to talk about cycle history, but I also want to talk about the solution because that's like, you know, uh, there's that great scene with Alexander Sadiq where he's the advocate and he's got Harry Seldon on trial and, you know, okay, well, if this is the problem, then what is the solution? Are you just a prophet of doom? And he goes, no, we need to, you know, like Earth had a, uh, he refers back to essentially the Library of Alexandria. He's like, we need to do that, only more decentralized. An encyclopedia galactica that gathers the sum total of all human knowledge, or at least everything that we can gather in the next few hundred years. And that will be the seed, the foundation, that uh the foundation from which the second galactic empire, presumably, or a Pax Galactica can kind of uh, build upon that. You won't have people in having to invent knowledge. It'll be all ready to go. And that can lead them out of the dark age uh, faster. But there's this great scene in the second episode where the foundation, which seems largely pooled from the empire's best and brightest, are kind of myopic about lots of things about like, well, what does that even mean? And then mm-hmm. we've seen that this is a lot. And, and we, we've, we've come to appreciate in, in later day history that like our concept of history, when I say our, I talk about kind of like Western dominated history 
I, I remember when I was taught history in school, it was always in relation to like how the world interacted with us. And again, when I say us, it's the West, you know, um, it wasn't like I didn't learn much about African civilizations. You know, we learned about the age yeah. of sail. And of course, that took place between 14, the, the 14th and the 17th centuries. I mean, the Polynesians colonized literally all the fucking Pacific Ocean thousands of years before. Where's the fuck? What? But the age of sails, the 300 years our Europeans were going around wooden boats doing shit. So right. that was the point of like, even from accounting as like, uh, you know, base 10, you know, base 10 actually kind of sucks for a lot of reasons. Math, but we probably uh, developed it because we have 10 fingers and it's easy to count mm-hmm. that way for humans. But base 12 is better for lottery. She brought a base 27, which is count. I don't know what the fucking body parts you're counting for that. But like hexadecimal yeah. in a lot of computer languages is 16. Uh, base, sure, base so, sixteen, yeah. um, which gives you even more divisors. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting side point to be like, well, if we're collecting uh, galactic history, whose point of view are we enshrining as the truth, and what what knowledge are we missing by taking like this reverse provincial view at the universe? If we're only you know we're dedicating so much time to the core worlds and stuff, then like what are we missing out? What are we skipping? I thought that was a great uh, concept of a potential flaw. And maybe that was also one of the things that the beads in the back is that Harry was sliding around when he when he selected Gale. Although, again, he's probably just dealing with probabilities, too. Did he happen to find an exiled heretic, brilliant mathematician from a backwater world that would have kind of like these reverse prejudices against the Empire? Or did psychohistory guide him to that that selection? Yeah. Yeah, because um, I, I think he would admit that he couldn't have selected her individually, right? Right, right. But maybe the thing he did was to uh, try to find someone who would think outside the box that would use. Because yeah. I think that was the other thing is like, didn't she use a theorem that was pioneered by a female map- mathematician on kind of a backwater planet and wasn't very well regarded or read or not even pe- many people knew about it? Yeah, it was like called the Abraxas problem. I think that's the practice. Do you use some other theorem that was like the he gave oh, her that like yes. the original scroll that had all those those things in it? So like I, I it, yeah, it, it was more like, of like a poetic uh, tome, but it also had embedded mathematics, and it was very controversial. Like n- nobody even yeah. read it because it was considered ludicrous. I guess. Yeah, it seemed like he maybe was trying to by devising this scheme to to get at someone that's outside the box, outside of like the core em- empire worlds to to you know, have that perspective. I thought that was really also cool. that concept, like the idea that she solved this problem by using some strange theorem that nobody else would ever, that everybody else would laugh at. I think also cast doubt on the efficacy of, uh, psycho history as well. Right. Like mm-hmm. if, if your mathematical calculations rely on algorithms that most mathematicians disregard, Mm-hmm. You have to be looked at as somewhat of a heretic, somewhat of a mm-hmm. charlatan, right? So, like, all that was feeding into the early um, sort of presentation of Harry Seldon as a guy who thinks he has the answers and acts very confidently as if he has the answers, but may be very wrong. I also thought it was interesting because they make this point about uh, I think uh, one of the emperors says that uh, art is politics, but sweeter. This this line between art and and science or art and and the, the harder things. Um, 
you know, Harry's uh, his mathematical equations are presented in a very beautiful way. Um, Gail mm-hmm. found this theorem in like this. She mentioned that this work was kind of like she started reading it is like this almost like this very poetic way of saying and very like non mad, but like in the margins, if you read between the lines, you saw what she was saying uh, suggested. So a lot yeah. of like mathematicians just disregarded because this is essentially hippy dippy bullshit. Um, I, I thought that was really interesting too. Like some cultures communicate via art. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that, and uh, even the, and it goes both ways. The, the, the empire communicates through it. They have the reason they have the mural, right? Um, and it's really like the most core synthesis of what I could express Asimov's um, aspirations as when he wrote the Foundation series. As I understand it, Foundation is very much about the science and the politics coming together, right? The people and the numbers, the the art and the science. Um, a lot of the book is, it, it's very dry, but it's all very like politicky. If you look at mm. it, it's all about the movement and the change of societies at large. And yes, you have psycho history predicting that stuff, right? And the concrete mathematics you could point to and say, things will probably happen this way because X, Y, Z. But then you have a lot of people exerting influence and their will in artful political ways. And I think that is what Asimov is saying is just as much as it's important to understand the science of things. It's also important to understand human nature. It's also under, important to understand uh, the, the you know, flow and the movement and change of a society, which man, I talk about the motifs in this show and how they're so strong. They do this with the mural too. It's, it, it, it's incredibly, incredibly well executed. Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. Our coverage of Hot D, Fire and Blood, and the 1980s Shogun miniseries continues. But then on Tuesday, for the first time in 35 years, we asked the question, who framed Roger Rabbit? Hop aboard the train to Toontown as we revisit this incredible blending of live action and animation to see if it still holds up all this time later. Then on Wednesday, we get our first look at Blake Crouch's mind-bending sci-fi series, Dark Matter. The first two episodes drop simultaneously on Apple TV+, and we'll have a pair of podcasts, quantumly linked, ready for you to observe. You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Hey, it's time for another season of Why is Mr. Feeney a Car? The premise is simple. A Gen Xer and a millennial watch old 80s action TV to see what still works and what doesn't. In previous seasons, we've done podcasts for Knight Rider, Airwolf, MacGyver, A-Team, and more. However, this year we're doing a very special season of Feeney. We're going back and reviewing the very special episodes of 80s and 90s sitcoms. Come cringe along with us as Hollywood tries to warn our families of the dangers of underage smoking, drug abuse, alcoholism, eating disorders, and much more. We start out with the episode of Boy Meets World where a high school kid gets sucked into a cult. Worlds collide as the Mr. Feeney finally makes an appearance on Why is Mr. Feeney a Car? Join me and my buddy Jay each week for episodes full of nostalgia and secondhand embarrassment. And don't worry, a very special isn't your speed. We've also got some all-time classic Knight Rider episodes to close the season with. Find Why is Mr. Feeney a Car? each Wednesday on Bald Move Pulp starting April 3rd.
We're about 10 weeks out from House of the Dragon Season 2, and it's time to prepare for war. Which in our case means, well, watching a lot of Hot D and reading a lot of Fire and Blood. Each week between now and June 16th, Maester Anthony and his co-host Steve are hosting a watch of each episode of Hot D Season 1. And then me and Jim are going to host a discussion of the differences between the events on that episode and how they're recounted in George R.R. Martin's historical tome, Fire and Blood. That's right, I've resorted to reading dragon books. God help us all. We'll see if my fresh eyes add any new insights or predictions into Season 2. Arm yourselves with all the lore you can for the battles ahead. House of the Dragon returns June 16th, but we've got you covered until then. Check out all of our upcoming Hot D coverage on the Hot D feed or on Bald Move Pulp, available wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to talk about the Empire, too, um, uh, the the personage of the Empire, the genetic dynasty, because I thought that was such a cool concept. Yeah. You know, clearly you've got um, it, it's, it's, it's such elegant, like, you know, there's so many in you think about so many stories in history of political instability. It's always when there's a transition, you know, you've got a revolution or uh, the, the old king dies and the sons of shit and all that kind of stuff. What if you could have like if everyone could agree that hey you know what this one ruler is pretty good what if you just kept having that one guy you wouldn't have to worry about succession and all the things that can happen during a messy transfer of power and all that stuff that's something we take for granted a lot in democracies that we well maybe the older democracies that like we have this thing where like we transition power from party to party from person to person everything kind of goes smoothly mostly but but I thought that was a great way to get around that. And the fact that you have like you decant these clones like a generation apart uh, and they refer to themselves as brothers, but they're not like they, they, I never got the idea that they have like knowledge dumped into them. Mm-hmm. It's just like you have the same man who's essentially constantly mentoring themselves. Yeah. But they also did a good job of showing how they're not the same. Like there is a little bit drift yes. and the way that I thought that, um, here made a point that that was the death knell. That's the final thing. When they started this cloning where there could never be change, where there could never be, everything would be kind of calcified. And they make the, 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 that, that point, that hubris, right? Mm-hmm. Like brother dusk was talking about, like imagine the hubris of thinking that not only are you going to be the first of a dynasty, but you will be the dynasty. You are the river from which everything else flows. Imagine thinking that much of yourself. And there's so many contradictions here because like, Lee Pace's character, uh, imp- the the current emperor, I guess the ruling emperor, Emperor Day, Brother Day, uh, he tells his younger counterpart that the way the empire affects ma- uh, effective control is we pay attention to details and mm-hmm. look at us, notice like the filigree of this artifact was given of a gift is showing that they could double the imperial tithe, whereas this other shows that they are desperate for the metal and they might... Um, but yet they, they treat these these backwaters um, with such contempt and lack of seriousness. How can you possibly get the details right? You're talking about these people singing a song and you practice it, but you can't get it right because you don't have the nuances like you're too yeah. far away. And now that you're just a singular person there, you're too calcified and resistant to change. It's again like it's not like they ever stopped the script and talk about this, but I thought it was really elegantly woven into the story how that you know this dynasty has 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 killed the ability for the empire to like reflexively respond to the concerns of the people. 
there are a couple of scenes I'm going to mention a show here that's going to probably trigger some people. Um, there are a couple of scenes in this show so far that are Game of Thrones esque. And I'm talking about the mm. really good Game of Thrones, the stuff where there <laughs> is a lot of information under the surface of the words the characters are speaking. The turkey scene or whatever it is. He's carving the, the Christmas goose, right? The peacock. And yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he does this um, probably for several reasons. But the thing that I took note of in this scene is how he reacts when the young brother Don says in what my opinion would be the correct answer to why it's a bad thing that the servants don't the servants inject this thing with a needle instead of the knife like they mm-hmm. the tradition mm-hmm. would dictate um mm-hmm. he says they're too scared to do their jobs well so you're guaranteeing they'll do their jobs poorly and that's poor stewardship and then if you look at the emperor he's he just essentially brushes that off when i think that is the absolute correct answer here you are you are creating a a servant class that feels like you are a tyrant who will not be able to perform because of how afraid they are of you. And I think the fact that he doesn't even consider that is a consequence of like how calcified this whole empire situation is. Yeah, I thought that scene was great because it it, it had a couple things. First of all, you had the, the kid that misinterpreted a hunting song Mm-hmm. To be about a hunting song when it's like if you're older and wiser, you know, oh, this is about the guy losing his virginity, you know. Yeah. Um, but yet in later in the second episode, the emperor insists that because he heard this particular song, it had to mean this thing and had to be this certain thing. And there's no other interpretation for it. You know, and he had that thing is like, I'd like to hang. I, I, someone's going to hang for this. I'd like it to be the right one. But like that's deliber- That's out. Uh, that 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 contradicts what the lesson he was trying to teach his his younger brother. And also, it's a warning, I think, on the Harry side that like, if people are afraid to do their jobs right, then the, you're you're guaranteed they're going to do them wrong. Well, like, what is Harry doing by running all these teams through all these constant simulations where they're always coming coming up uh, with failure? Yeah, you know, like you're, it's like there's literal damned if you do, damned if you don't. Well, if you let this beast attack, then your crew will be ripped up, and you can't afford to replace those losses. But if you take the shot, you might blow a methane vein or something. Um, mm-hmm. Again, it's I, I thought that was really great how they they use that stuff in the script to to have so many different meanings, and um, then they're using that generational gap between the the emperors to like show both how naive children can be right but how that can also provide some clarity as well like which is yes the kid doesn't get the song is about fucking but also he does not the the brother day doesn't understand that brother don is actually totally right about his servants mental status so like yeah there's a lot of back and forth for these generations and then they're doing something even different with the older version right where like he's sort of having a what what is it all for kind of vibe right what what are we doing yeah. here <laughs> yeah it was as at the tail end of his, uh, of his life which that's the thing yeah. i thought was man going back to the the genetic uh lineage of this is like has there ever been an old emperor that just doesn't want to pass on like he's like you got the you like brother day and he gets to be you know 45 and 50s looking gray and his pecs are starting to sag and he's like you know what <laughs> I don't think brother Don's ready for it. 
I don't know. I don't I don't think so. Like, has yeah. there ever been like and maybe they'll play with that idea? I think that would be kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this show does so much great, great work at because even going back to the, that psycho history stuff where you're talking about, uh, you know, the importance of people. They make that point so many times, like the math is the math. The math is important. But as Harry said, uh, without the people, you can't you, you can't they, they both need each other yeah. because the math without the people has no like what agency, essentially. Right. And the people without the math are just unreasoning kind of like beasts trampling around causing chaos. Mm-hmm. So you have to have both both of those things kind of in, in, in harmony. You have to count for both things. You can't just be. Uh, a number cruncher and that's the question i have is like losing harry it's like he seems like almost uniquely suited to play both of those roles and like if you lose him this early into the project what the hell does that mean yeah (laughs) very good question probably my favorite scene in the whole thing um i don't know how conceptually this ties into the themes but my favorite scene is the scene where he uh, brother day has brought the two leaders of Thespis and Anacreon to the scar, right? And they're in this like burned out husk of what looks almost like a gladiatorial arena. And he's putting people involved that he, that he assumes are involved in the conspiracy to destroy the space elevator, uh, the star bridge uh, to death. And he's hanging them and you can see the crowds around, right? He doesn't do this in the Imperial palace. He takes this out to people to demonstrate his strength. And I think that was it was both intellectually interesting and also just an excellently composed scene. I I, I couldn't help but, you know, feel like, oh, my God, this this is going to dark places when he's pushing people off of that second, third story, whatever, to their to their deaths and hanging them. And the crowd is erupting in cheers. Right. I I think of some of the moments that like we've had in our past where it, you know, people have done things to us. Um, recently we commemorated a 20th anniversary of one of those for nine 11. And mm-hmm. you, you know that people want some kind of vengeance here and they don't necessarily care who it's targeted at. And that's yeah. a very scary thing. And I got all of that, that emotion and that danger out of this scene. There's also a thing about the human spirit. I've read that like uh, humans um, are predisposed and like we are very bad at risk analysis because we tend to overvalue the reward and we minimize the risk. Some of us are wired the other way, but like that's why we're explorers, you know, because all we we see oh the discovery oh the new worlds we're going to see. We don't see burning up on atmosphere. We don't see our ship breaking in a, in a rogue wave and drowning. Right. That's you know, yeah. that that's. Um, and you can see like in this arc full of true committed believers that you have people taking crazy risks because of the idea that like, OK, well, OK, maybe it's better to wait to have a baby when we make planet because it was almost comical. The way the lady was like, oh, I know about the radiation. I know about the birth defects. I know about my poison milk. Uh. But what if I never make it to the planet or what if we make it to the planet? It's even worse. Like these true believers cannot can cannot truly commit um, to to what is what they think is the better way to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that says something interesting about and, and that'll be a constant tension to the idea that the things we're doing, like it was that old proverb that like the society will prosper when old men plant the trees of shade to which they'll never be able to feel mm-hmm. yeah. like 
the concept that everything you're doing in your life is going to benefit people that are living hundreds of years after you're dead. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, you're going through tons and tons of short hardships. And even people that are, are taking that deal are like trying to find their own little shortcuts to it. Uh, and here's what I, I mean, love. First generation, yeah. you memorialize, right? You're like, oh, fuck. Yeah, these are the people that came over on the boats, <laughs> the pilgrims, baby. Second, yep. third, fifth, 20th generations don't get shit. They just get yeah. shit on. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't ever they see the end of this thing. There are going to be generations that don't see this. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious once we get past that first generation that might have an incentive to get their name on some plaque somewhere at Terminus. What yeah. what do those people look like? What do those people think and do? That is fast. It's like anytime I think of colony ships, you know, the idea of like sending a ship in space is going to take a thousand years to get to a star, but you're going to have generations of people living in board. Like the people that launch that ship, right. that's a big fucking deal. The people that land on the extraterrestrial <laughs> planet. But what about the generations between? Yeah. You're literally just a uh, uh, suspended animation with long, with with extra steps. Yeah, you, you, your entire life is a cryo tank for your genetic material to pass on, eventually colonize this thing. Like, I almost think that a colony ship would never work because, like, it would fall to chaos and rebellion because of people realizing the pointlessness of their immediate lives. Or I don't know, maybe, maybe. you could like make some kind of like shipboard religion that you can in- induce in people. But either way, you either have to engage in mass deception, lying, or coercion. Or you face like, you know, chaos zealotry. And- I mean, you have to uh, you have to have a pretty tight grip on people's yeah emotions. And, and we already have like suicide bombers. So that's like, you know, one of the heights of zealotry. Right. So it's clearly those themes of religious fanaticism versus like cold empiricism and, and conflict. Those are going because that, that's in conflict even in, in, in Harry's crew, his handpicked crew. Yeah. Uh, what much less the, the eight trillion people that's living in the galaxy. OK, Jim, um, I want to talk about the main characters as far as the ones I can tell um, from from the series. And then the, we'll talk about some uh, book b- book versus show differences. If people want to check out for that, they can. But first up, uh, obviously, um, one of. One of the important, clearly important roles that we just don't know much about right now is as Warden Salver. Mm-hmm. You know, we know like uh, she's some sort of authority figure that is watching over the the foundation on Terminus. This happens thirty five years past all the rest of the plot of the episodes. You know, all yeah. the stuff you see with Harry and Gale and all that stuff. Um, and she's got something special to her. That allows her to resist the null field of this vault object. Um, wow. Uh, because like as Gail, as Gail's uh, narration informs us, like, you know, Harry's psycho history does great on large scales, large swaths of humanity, but it doesn't predict individuals. Yeah. What is the effect of an individual who can breach this vault and, and uh, you know, uh, breach this null, null effect and, and get to the vault? Um, yeah, we don't know what's causing it. I mean, we don't even know what the vault is. I, I, it seems like some alien presence in the way that it's sort of depicted here. Um, is this like some kind of mutation that she has that, yeah, Harry couldn't have foreseen, um, you know, what's in the vault they call whatever is in there a ghost. I don't, I don't know exactly what they think is in there, but that Mm. sounds interesting. 
Um, yeah, it could just be her though. She she said that she's that's uh, that the the ghost people see is her. Um, but clearly she's going to be involved in some could kind be. of like either monkey wrench or some or linchpin of of Harry Seldon's plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we we don't know much about her other than she's got a really cool suit of body armor. I, I was wondering like if is that what allows her to resist a field? There's just so many mysteries and questions about uh, her that uh, I don't know. She's got a lot of question marks, but she's got a, She's definitely going to be a central figure moving moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's of course Gail. I thought she was interesting. She's not just from a backwater, but she's from a fun. She's from this like fundamentalist religious cult. Yeah, uh, and she was going to be one of the priests of her society. Um, had those seeing stones and um, embedded into her cheeks. And at some point, uh, she was she's I don't know that she chose to get that done to her. Or they were stripped from her. And uh, the way Harry talks is she was about to be either imprisoned or executed uh, because of the heresy uh, of being curious, uh, trying to warn people about the impending climate change disaster. Um, and now she's she's a heretic. She's an outsider. Uh, oh, my my impression was that she was about to potentially be executed because she had solved the Abraxas equation or problem or whatever and they had found out about that which yeah because I, I think the the climate crisis happened way before her you're time. right but isn't it isn't that but but she also said like you know when she was uh maybe she's talking in general terms in a trial because she said I, I i thought uh she had mentioned something about wanting to save her people that's why she got into that but then she also she, she got oh. into it because she's lonely and was reading a bunch and uh, maybe uh, and i'm not that. sure the exact history of her yeah she's brilliant at math it felt like almost intuitively so like she wasn't formally educated in all this stuff she just is a big reader and she's got a knack for it um and she can like in the same way harry can kind of grasp these big picture things in a way that few others can yeah um, on her planet she couldn't really have any formal training She's also special in some way. Um, I wonder, is she special in like the same way that Salver is? That she has some kind of mutation or gift or ability? Uh, we, we see that she was able to regain consciousness during hyperspace jump, which is supposed to yeah. be impossible. And we also are told by another character that it can change your perception. Like you're, it sends, as they said, it sends your body and mind on different trips. Um, so what yeah, the fuck I'm does looking that mean? for the fallout from that. Like where, where does that intersect with what we're seeing here? Yeah, I, it, I, did I it just know. make her like crazy? And now she's backing everything that Selden says, even though that's crazy. Like there's a lot of question marks around Selden um, and his psychohistory, even though yeah. you've got a, an outside, uh, an outsider coming in and confirming it, right? Because she herself is a big question mark. Hmm. Uh, you also have the relationship she has with Raish. Uh, Raish is, uh, I, I got the opinion, I got the idea that he is kind of like an adopted son to Harry. That from Harry's perspective, yeah. he took him in in a bad space from, which was, wasn't literally true. Um, because the way he told it, like, he, yeah, he grew up poor, his mom died, his father was injured in an industrial accident, and he was stealing books, but he's stealing books to get his father's treatment, where Harry got it all backwards. He's like, oh, your mom died, and your dad is drinking himself to death, and I caught you stealing books, and I, and I took you in. Uh, I wonder if there's anything important in that to, this distinction. It's like every mob movie you've ever seen, right, where the, the mobster comes around and befriends the kid. 
you know, flips right, him a quarter and says, here, kid, buy yourself some candy. Yeah. Uh, and then 25 years later, he's got him on the payroll. <laughs> right, right, right. It, uh, there's a lot of Martin Scorsese movies that start that way anyway. Yes. Um, but he, he's something of a son. Like he, he refers to him as, as such uh, early in, in the first episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gets this kind of um, intense, infatuated young person relationship with Gail. They both do. Um, also, we mentioned that Gail got pregnant this episode and then had her zygote removed for the seed bank. Yeah. That was interesting. I thought that in the first episode when I was just watching just without taking notes or anything or the first time I watched it, I thought they were just harvesting eggs. Like that's something Me they too. did to like every once in a while. They just like get all the women in there, harvest eggs to make sure the radiation doesn't fuck with them. And then they got good, clean genetic material to work with on the land planet side. But no, apparently they're only doing that. Uh, no, no need for birth control. They can just uh, they can just harvest the, the babies right out of your your uterus and, and put them in the, the cryo freeze. Maybe they do both. Uh, It'd be smart to do both, right? Get the, get the eggs, get the sperm and stuff before it's been irradiated by, you know, a massive sublight travel. Uh, I guess it's faster than light, but yeah, get it, get it early before it's been irradiated. Um, and then you got Harry Seldon, which is kind of the most in, 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 Jesus Christ, mysterious figure in the in the show. I just porky pigged it. You're right, um, because he has a lot of dialogue and he talks a lot, but like he never talks about his interior thoughts or feelings. Like I think he 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 clear. It's clear to me that he loves Raish. Uh, it's clear to me that he respects and admires Gale. Um, I think he's a benevolent figure and that he is one of those few who will take the long view of things and and take the risks necessary to. Save people that he'll never meet, uh, torment. But like, we don't really know what his hopes and fears and dreams are. We see, you know, Jared, there's scenes of Jared Harris, uh, fretting in his office, looking at his, his uh, calculations and putting his hands in his head, you know, and like sweating all the details. But we don't really know about it. now that he's his, his uh, shocking death has happened. I'm not sure, you know, how else we're going to, to get to know him. Um, but I don't yeah, know, is, what what my, else do we know about this guy? My guess uh, as to his inner turmoil is whether or not he's right about this stuff. I think he projects a very self-assured uh, sort of belief in psychohistory, but privately, maybe he worries that his predictions are not as, as strong as he makes them sound, or perhaps that you know, if he sees himself eventually being killed by the emperor or somebody that once he's gone, he's not sure he can maintain the course. Um, and that psychohistory will sort of drift. So the three of these have an interesting relationship in that, uh, you know, uh, they introduce Raish's knives, you know, they go, uh, Gail wants to go to a seer temple um and the the apparently you can't bring weapons in there so he has to disarm his knives he got this wicked looking hunting knives um and he uses the same knives to kill like to gut harry selden and then he takes gail and he drags her into this escape pod and throws the murder weapon at her feet and then fills it full of fluid and injects her into deep space this is one of the ones i thought this was like maybe uh, a weakness i saw in the episode because like 
my my understanding of this is this is essentially a Dumbledore Snape play. And I know that doesn't mean anything to you because it's Harry Potter, but it literally means that everyone else on the planet knows what I'm talking about. Oh, sure. That you've you've got a guy who is going to die. And I, I say that because there was a there's a knowing glance between Raish and Harry at the dinner table where like Harry looks significantly at this box of pills that he's taking a pill for. I'm 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 gathering and again this is not book knowledge because this this does not happen in the book. But I'm guessing that Harry is dying for some reason anyway. One of the reasons that maybe he engineered or steered the destiny to where he would die as a martyr. Um but like I I I was wondering if um Raish kill like well, what does that accomplish the to to kill Harry and then take his chief acolyte, put the murder weapon in her pod and eject her into space. Like, what is the purpose of that? Does that serve? Do you have any ideas or any, any I mean, speculation? My initial thought when I was watching it is that he's getting rid of the murder weapon. You know, like he's going to send her out into space and he doesn't want the murder weapon on him because then people knew he, know he did it. But if you say there are knowing glances and then maybe this whole t- t- scene at the dinner table or whatever is manufactured um you know maybe maybe selden does in fact know exactly what he was doing with the books and stealing them but he created this so that you know they could act like there was some scuffle and then maybe race could take a fall um maybe that's part of the plan i but if that's, that's the case it, yeah. he would want the murder weapon right he would want it to be on him so i i don't know i'm confused by all this because like you said it's not in the books and it came out of nowhere for me. It just surprised the hell out of me. Well, there's so the only thing I can guess is there's another hint where brother day says, you know, Harry Seldon is not beyond our reach. We could kill him and we could blame the other side and we could say it until it's in the air that we breathe and all that kind of stuff. And it seems like he's dissuaded from the act. Cause like, I, I think maybe there, I think there is um, something pitched at a one element of the, the audience. It's like, hey, this is exactly what's happened. The emperor's just decided to use a cat's paw and it's Raish and he's angry at his father, his, his adopted dad for killing his, making his real dad drink himself to death. And he's doing this. Um, but I don't like that interpretation. I, I like the Dumbledore Snape one better, which is essentially um, maybe Harry wanted the emperor to do that, to martyr him and the emperor refusing to do it. They're going to do a reverse plan where, uh, Raish is going to say that, um, Gail murdered Harry and he was shocked and horrified and knew that the ship would tear her apart. So he loaded her in an escape pod and got her off there so they couldn't hurt her. And that she's going to go back to, I'm guessing the core of the empire and, while while she's making that trip, this ship is going to report a broadcast that she's murdered Harry, and that's something that the Emperor is going to be pleased with, and it's going to allow mm-hmm. her to curry favor with the Emperor. To what end? Because again, that's uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But that's a wild deviation from the plot of the book. Huge. Uh, and I've only read the first book, so maybe this is in you know one of the sequels or something, and they fill mm-hmm. this in more. But I don't know anything about Harry's death, although yeah it takes place over a large span of time, that first book. So he's definitely dead. It's just <laughs> how that happened. I don't, don't think I knew just why uh, there's something me. special about her also being able to be awake during jumps. Like, is like, are they going to literally, you're going to see the next episode that she sent through a wormhole. Like there's yeah, an maybe. actual naturally occurring one that Harry knows in this region. It's cause like, that's the thing. It's like, 
you know, Harry is like the ultimate kind of like, oh, you foresaw this. Well, I foresaw, foresaw that you foresaw it. And I because of that and I foresaw that you foresaw that I would foresee that. And yeah. so he's he's got all these like plans within plans with the plans. I, I wonder if they're going to do some freestyling in the show to kind of like really show those those multiple layers. And that's going to be one of them. I, but again, I'm trying to th- trying to figure out like, OK, Gail is special. She can stay away from hyperspace jumps, which allows her to travel long distance. In a safe way, it is apparently impossible from other humans, uh, or at least baseline humans. Um, yeah, yeah. I it, it's, so I have a lot of wild theories um, because, like I said, none of this happens in the book. Um, I, I've got a, a crazy theory that says Harry Seldon arranged for the space elevator to be blown up. You know, uh, it, 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 this could be one of the predictive uh, sort of events that he needs to happen, and this will exceed. Or, you know, speed up the downfall of the Empire. Um, And and there's a quote that you were talking to me about before this episode where I think it's uh, Gail is talking about characters that they'll see or or people that will come across. And one of them was... The story of humanity, yeah. And and there were four things listed, right? One of them was murderer, uh, martyr, mathematician, Harry Seldon. Yeah. And thinking back now, if that's the case, if he, and this is like kind of why I maybe think that he is a mathematician, certainly. Sure. He has become a martyr. Um, if, mm-hmm. if he's trying to blame, you know, this empire, uh, on his death, he mm-hmm. is definitely Harry Seldon that we know. Well, he's murder. He's a martyr. No matter what, he's a believer in a cause and he was murdered. True. Um, yeah. Whether it's yeah, 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 yeah. Whether it's by the Empire or some rogue agent within his organization, yes. Um, and he definitely is Harry Seldon. So the only thing he hasn't proved to <laughs> yes, be yes, that that does check out <laughs> that last fact. Yeah, uh-huh. is a murderer. But what if he orchestrated the the bombing of this space elevator? That would make him a mass murderer. Yeah, and it changes how I feel about him. But on the other hand, when you're talking about like eight billion, you know, what is a hundred million people against eight trillion? And he's talking about 29,000 um, years of dark ages, averting all of that. Yeah. yeah. Massive he did not just eight trillion famine. current citizens, but all the ones that'll be born in, or not born into the future because of that. It's like, yeah, like it's horrifying calculus, but it, he is a mathematician, as you said. Right. So that's, that's one interpretation that like Harry is all those things, but like strictly speaking, what she said is the, there are roles that loom larger in history than others. And here are some of the bigger, and you have a mathematician, a martyr, a murderer, and then Harry Seldon. Mm-hmm. If if we try to say that, okay, well, those aren't all the same because she's literally said you've got, you know, a, a, a sailor, a soldier, a baker, and then this other guy. Probably you wouldn't say that those are all the same thing. If we tried to look at unless like, they're Steven Seagal other... in Under Siege, and then they definitely are. <laughs> <laughs> or Gary Oldman and Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy because yes. he was all no. Uh, but but yeah, like if you're if a mathematician obviously is gale if you eliminate harry from that martyr sure. uh, a murderer obviously raish mm-hmm. i think i mean you could also say the emperor i guess but like raish seems yeah. to be the one singular character committing a murder not an execution you got harry selden who is uncontroversially harry selden right but then you got the martyr and i'm not sure if in this circumstance i'm not sure if, if this is the correct understanding i don't think the martyr has been identified yet because i don't think that uh, she says sure. a martyr, not like because you got the two guys that martyred themselves to take out the star bridge. Mm. 
but I don't I can't think of anybody else. Um, I think the martyr if so. So I guess we need to twin track these theories, like uh, keep in mind that maybe it's all Harry Seldon. They're, they're doing a little Obi Kenobi, Obi Wan Kenobi fudging of words. Mm-hmm. Or we've got a ser- scenario where we're, we're still trying to identify. We got some pretty strong leads on the martyr or the murderer and the mathematician angle. Um, but if Harry Seldon can't be the martyr, then there must be some other martyr. Yeah. And uh, we're going to be looking for them. There's one other aspect of Harry's death that I want to talk about that struck me. Um, okay. And it's the alarm on the ship that's monitoring his vital functions and says, Harry uh-huh. Seldon's uh, life functions have ceased and it's flashing Plot advancement my- alert. The, the will, danger will Robinson. The plot has advanced. Yeah. I, that struck me as strange, right? Because it is, it is cheesy and weird and, and dumb for a series like this that has been so amazing uh, in its, its crafting. I don't understand. Is this some like. It makes me think it's part of the plan, right? Why would Harry Seldon have rigged an alarm on his ship to let the crew know when he dies? Unless that was very, very important. I want to say it because it's contrasted with the other final scene from the Emperor's perspective where he's doing this big theatrical execution at the scar, right? Uh huh. Is it just theatrics? Is it literally just to make sure everyone's aware? Because you see the head of the foundation project being like, what's going on? He sees this guy covered in blood and he sees her and this guy's like, is it just to sell the story that she and and we're taking her off to so like. Raish is going to be the one that uh, takes the fall for this from the colony's perspective because he's the one that married the, the martyrs Harry Seldon, but she's not going to be she's going to be in chrono sleep or whatever and can't correct the story until a year. Yeah, I don't know because that's the only thing I can think weird. of. It's literally theatrics. Like Harry wanted it this way so that when it happened, it no one could fail to take notice. It's one of those yes. big variables that he wanted to make sure his his target population of of uh, probability people noticed yeah um i i don't i don't think this will like set off a second phase of foundation because everyone has to be in on it right and then what does right. it mean to martyr yourself when everyone is in on the plan of you being martyred it's like right was race the only one not told that his death would kick off the second phase of this thing uh yeah, so I, I don't know. You're probably right. It's probably just theatrics, but it struck me as strange. We we covered this quite a bit in other parts of the podcast, but the Emperor, the genetic dynasty, mm-hmm. brothers Dusk, Dawn, and Day. Uh, is there anything that we want to cover there? Man, um, the casting is so good. They The old brother Dusk looks exactly like an old Lee Pace. He really does. He's got the even got the hair slicked back to kind of like the no. Like it, it is a very, very good. Like, I'm not sure about the kid, but then, you know, I don't, I don't who know who can tell like, with kids. Yeah, right. And uh, um, I'm, I'm sure that they'll advance the ages of these roles as we go as we go forward. But mm-hmm. uh, the, the casting is, is extraordinary. Um, I think they're doing a good job of portraying these guys as like seemingly benevolent, you know, like uh, that the, the majority of the people kind of like support the emperor's peace and respect it. And, you know, they've been doing it for 400 years. So bully on them. I like some of the specific things like the, that hand gesture they're always using, which reminds me a lot of like, uh, you know, you see a picture of Jesus with the when, when he's making this sign. It's like the sign of a blessing or something. And it's yeah. 
uh, I was always taught that that in, in uh, like the Catholic Catholic religions and some of the Eastern Orthodox religions that that sign represents the Trinity because you're holding up three fingers, including your, your two fingers and your thumb. But also the two fingers represents the dual nature of Christ uh, as divine and human. And I thought that they were deliberately um, evoking that kind of like this God emperor type con, uh, con and the fact that they are a triune, literally a trinity of, of ruling bodies. One has the head and is currently the one that's in charge, but the others have powers and abilities of their own. Like, for example, uh, when Brother Day tried to shut down El- the Brother Dusk from meeting with the ambassadors, he's like, that's not your job. He goes, no, but it is my right. Like, you know, I have a job to oversee and and I wonder if they'll also get into because I I alluded to like, what has there ever been a brother day that doesn't want to become a brother dusk and just wants to keep living, you know, or prolong his natural life or disrupt this? Like, what is the mechanism that keeps that in place? And I'm very interested because brother dust seems to be declining. Like Lee Pace's character notices it. We see him fall off his ladder. Uh, his hands are shaking. I think he himself realizes that he's coming to the end. I, I wonder what that looks like. You know, what 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 is the process of uh, you know one one? What is the process of them advancing? Do they have to all advance at the same time? What would happen if like Brother Dusk was assassinated? You know, or for that matter, Brother Day was assassinated. Like, how would they make up? Maybe maybe they're just impervious yeah. to harm with those collars. I I don't know. But um, uh, I true. thought th- those things are that are really cool to 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 kind of speculate about. Yeah, um, you, but, you wonder what would have happened if uh, the space elevator had landed, perhaps on the Imperial Palace. Um, right? Would the collars have protected them from something like that? Right. Who knows? Well, because it's yeah, when like uh, the his assistant, uh, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, Dem- Demerzel, seemed really concerned when he took off when he disact deactivated his collar like now yeah. he could actually take physical damage but yeah the whole fucking scar just collapsed on him is he just in a stasis field in a bottle of rubble <laughs> ah, we'll dig him out in 100 years or whatever but right I, I don't know um i also wonder if there are limits to that personal protection too like you know that's proof of assass against assassination but like what can it save you from like an atomic bomb someone drops a black hole on you the vacuum of space like what what yeah, good questions. Maybe we'll see more. Well, like I said, they, they, they did a good job of showing the benevolence or the seeming benevolence of the character, but also like the underbelly of what this piece is maintained. Like uh, they evaporate, they disintegrate a long term uh, retainer to the family, the guy that maintains the mural that the other guys have done just for having a, a Harry Seldon tracked in his quarters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we see all the shrouding, the just indiscriminate shrouding, which looks like a traumatic process. Uh, Their presentation Day, of strength is to destroy a good portion of the two planets that uh, may have may or may not have had something to do with the space elevator destruction. Right. And, and, and whether they did or not, whether it was an act of a, a few lone madmen or like a coordinated uh, effort by the government. All the people on that planet didn't 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 weren't part of that. Right. And the punishment was was indiscriminate. So um, and it's also telling that, like, when Brother Dawn, you know, said, like, will all the days be like, she's like, oh, no, you don't have to always make these difficult decisions. And it's like, when we have these difficult decisions, does it all do we always choose this? And she says, yes. So like Brother Dusk says, don't overthink to stick too much. It seems like the emperor's like, you know, 
there, there's a way that you can look at that. It's like, you know, we got eight trillion people to, to take care of. If we wipe, if we wipe out a hundred million people on a planet to save that piece and really who cares? It's a rounding error. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're really, they're really good. Like I said, Lee Pace just gives that sense of gra- gravitas in the same way that like, yeah. uh, you know, Jared Harris uh, can portray, you know, do that laundry room scene where he mm-hmm. just like inspires the whole room. Um, it's just, just so well casted. And then I want to talk about Demerzel. Okay. So I think we talked about this in the preview podcast, but like there was a lot of speculation that she was going to be a robot. Um, robots were not in, you know, even though Asimov is synonymous with the concept of robotics, the laws of robotics, he did a whole series based on like, you know, advanced artificial intelligence and how they'd interact with the humans and all that kind of stuff. He never in the foundation series. I thought it was interesting that they found the way to like bring this character who is a big part of because because one of the things Asimov did later in his life was try to unify all of his works into this grand kind of story like, you know, the foundation and empire and robot series didn't really have much to do with each other. But then he wrote some prequels and stuff that kind of like showed that, oh, no, these are all in the same universe and they're all connected. And this Dimmerzel character um, who she even hints has lived a long time like she's like, you know, I'll you know, she promises brother Don, I'll be there for you the way I always have been and I always will be because she's a mm-hmm. robot. She's never going to age. Um, I was actually shocked that they reveal her true nature in the like what's the, what the second episode. Yeah, especially after they mention, you know, robot wars and AI sympathizers and all this kind of stuff. You're thinking, well, surely the Empire wouldn't risk having robots after all of that. Um, and I, I thought maybe that they were doing some robot stuff with the Starbridge um, attendees, let's say, the people who yeah. sort of stay awake the sp- while you... They, they call them spacers. Yeah, but you pointed out that maybe they're just modified humans, which would make more sense um, because the robotic nature of Dimmerzel seems to be pretty hidden from mm-hmm. everyone except for the emperor emperors themselves. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe those are modified humans and not robots. Because I, that's the thing is like, I, I think you're supposed to understand this universe that they had a robotic war. And as a result of that, that just like it happens in Frank Herbert's Dune. Pro, um, yeah. Picard. You had this, this you, sure. you, every, yeah, you have, you know, Sarah Connor, Connor Chronicles, the robots yes. go berserk. You got to wipe them out before they wipe us out. Uh, the organic beings came out on top in this universe and they've all been stomped out of existence. Dimmerzel says as much to brother day. It's like, you know, we didn't die. Your kind destroyed us. And there's a difference to that. Um, I felt like there's a bunch of glances and scenes where it felt like, you know, that was like the way she gave that line reading, like, no, we didn't die. We were destroyed by your kind. And then she kind of like that voice dripped into a little bit of menace. And then went instantly back to like the matern the 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 matronly role of you know kind of like mothering this child. Do you think there's any significance to that? Because also it's I, I'm thinking um, you know she said uh, when when they're talking in the the apple orchard about there being an imperial garden that has an apple orchard. It's older than the robot wars. That's where they used to hang AI sympathizers. And she said people were sympathetic to the robots. There's always a sympathizer. I wonder if she is got her own goal. Like what is her long plan? Yeah. Why does why does the imper- why does the empire trust her? This devious AI construct. Uh, what what's how the much deal, does she mold? She spends a lot of time with brother Duh, or brother Don. Um, yeah, mentoring him. Right. How much does she mold the actual emperor? How much is she the power behind the curtain? Um, that really runs the empire. Right. You think 
So, so this is a bit redundant because of the cloning idea, but in this context, there are several, let's say, generational powers here, right? There's the empire, which is supported by cloning, and the, the emperor himself is a generational power. There's robots who live for generation after generation, so individually they can be generational. And then there's the foundation itself, which is meant to be this generation-spanning uh, preservation project and uh, like i said i think it's a bit redundant to have like the robot inside the empire and both of those things being sort of an individual that is generational there's Mm. some slight nuance there because you know it's not actually truly the individual in the emperor's case but it is right as close as a human form can get to it so like yeah i i don't know i'm i'm interested to see what they do with those forces going forward I mean, from a storytelling standpoint, it is nice to have like if your protagonists are going to change by necessity, because it seems like that's one of the things that Harry is is different. He's like, you know, the brother day said, surely you can see the value of having a younger uh, your own mind and a younger body. And he's comparing him to what he's doing to Gail, like, you know, making her his acolyte. And he's like, yeah, but I there's a difference. And that is the difference. I value the differences. I don't want a carbon copy of me. I want. Um, so they're, they're the heroes who are going to have a succession of different, I guess, you know, people that they're handing the torch, the baton to, uh, versus the antagonist, perhaps the robot lady and the emperors who were always going to have Lee Pace playing, you know, 10, 15 years older, maybe 10, 15 years younger than him. Uh, yeah. we're always going to have brother dusk, same thing. We're always going to have either a little kid or a teenage version, Dawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, like having a consistent protagonist that you can identify with is maybe one thing that they're making as a sop to storytelling. Just like, hey, you know, we, the protagonist is going to shift like sands of grain in these fucking paintings, but the the villains will always be clear and consistent and and easy to identify. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Can I ask you a sort of meta question? What do sure. they do if this show goes for eight seasons and spends like ten years in production with Brother Dawn? Because the actual kid who's playing brother Don right now will age mm-hmm. into a teenage version of himself, the real life kid. But then do you, and the, the kid who apparently there's going to be a, a teenage brother Don. I saw that the in some kid of the preseason stuff yeah. who plays him as a teenager will age out of that role. Do you then replace him with the younger kid who grew up? you know, in season eight or whatever we're doing, or I don't even know if the empire will be around in season eight, but well, I mean, it's an interesting sort of dynamic with ages of actors and ages of clones with the time jump that we're dealing with. We already had like a a time jump back and forth 35 years with Mm -hmm. those kind of time jumps. You could like have a person be five or 10 years older and still playing the same person. And also since they're clones, you can kind of fudge that a little bit to where, Oh, that works with like Lee Pace and the old guy, but not with the kid, not the young guy, but like maybe the young guy, you're just, they're always going to be a version of like, they're going to jump to, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a good, I I guess like with the cloning, they can fudge it with like the young guys as slightly different versions of himself. But, Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, that's one of the reasons they casted, they need a new, I I don't think the the young kid looks like a very plausible young Lee Pace either. So like, maybe that's why they kind of, yeah zigged with that casting so they can you know you're not but i don't know i guess i'm expecting when they re when they get a teenage emperor day that he's going or emperor dawn he's going to look more of like a plausible i think he does pace, yeah. but who knows 
Who knows? Um, but the other thing about Demerzel is she wants to be human. She's got like a Lieutenant Commander Data um, arc, but that might be a survival camouflage yeah. more than an aspiration because she's like, uh, what's that line she says? It's it's dangerous to try to like inhabit two different realities at the same time. It's confusing to commit to more than one reality. Yeah. Um, I thought that was an interesting line that might bear uh, further f- fruit. Uh, the final character, and I don't uh, well, I guess there's two characters. One um, is the seer. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about him, so he's the he's the only priest of this obscure religion from the planet that uh, uh, Gale is along. Synod or something. Syntex. Um, Syn- Syntex. Syntex. Synax. Synax. That's there. You got yeah. it. Um, he's the only one allowed on Trantor. Uh, clearly hates the empire and probably all technology and all that kind of stuff. But he seems to be playing double sides because he reaffirmed when, when Gail goes to see him, he reaffirms her status as heretic and damned and unseen by God, but also offers her safety and refuge. But then when the emperor comes and asks her, like, does he have, does she have the gift? Was she a genuine seer? He says she sees nothing, but then nevertheless reaffirms her, correction is predicted or her, her prediction correct and they're like yeah the empire is going to burn mm-hmm. so what is this guy's whole deal man uh i wonder if he's going to be he i wouldn't even say he's going to be a main character except for he's very conspicuously part of the verse very first two, two episodes he's at harry's trial he yeah. advises gail the emperor seeks the emperor dust seeks, seeks him out um i wonder where that's going i think you know, I I wouldn't necessarily think without him that the uh, that Gail was on her way back to uh t- tenant. What the fuck is the name of this planet? Terminus or Trantor? Trantor. Thank you. Uh, that she was on the way back to Trantor. But with how conspicuous he is in the first episodes and how much tension there would be between him and her mm-hmm. if she were to go back, I think you might be right about that's where she's headed back to hmm. Trantor to yeah reconnect with the seer so we already and the know there's, a, there's and, already yeah there's already someone who'll offer her like refuge and um but i don't know yeah. like also how much power do these seers these priests have on the planet because like they can boss around the fucking emperor dusk anyway yeah, um the other thing uh the other character that uh, i'm looking for that it's not even a character is clark peters who uh, bald move fans might recognize yeah. as Lester Freeman from the wire. Like this guy doesn't even have a speaking line. Maybe I says, he says one sentence and the camera cuts him laughing. Like he's going to be a significant figure. You don't, you don't bring Clark Peters into <laughs> uh, a television production. If, if you're just going to have him laugh at a joke and say, pass yeah. the table salt, please. Also, so, you don't darken his beard and hair either. If he's not yeah. going to be around for a little while. Right. I do know that 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 uh, famously black don't crack, but the wire did take place 20 fucking years ago. And yeah. the man does not seem to have aged. He he got he was like in his mid 50s there and he's just he's just stayed at that level. No, if you look uh, at him like in shit. real life, he does have a few gray hairs for sure. His beard is made yeah. a, little, a little grayer, but yeah, they yeah. clearly, clearly like darkened his beard and his hair. So that tells me that they're eventually going to get to his natural state and it'll be maybe the 35 years later or whatever. Or yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And he will be a bigger part of the show. I'm sure. 
I'm wondering how they do because I, I thought the way they did the time jumps was just just great. You know, you've got the the initial hook to kind of set the mystery and uh, kind of reminded me how Game of Thrones began. You know, like this like a central mystery of what is the field, what is mm-hmm. the the vault, all that kind of stuff, and then. You know, it goes back to the main storyline. That's 35 years before. Like, but there's we want to know what comes in between. I want to know what happens to Gale. I want to know what happens to Raish. I want to know what happens like what I want to see the founding of Terminus and their struggles and how they set up the foundation and get the Galactic Encyclopedia Galactica going and all that stuff. Um, I, I hope they have they have a good way to handle all that because I'll be a little dissatisfied if. Because that's the one thing that really threw me in the sick. Because I, you know, I had this Alan Sepinwall saying this is a this is an overall mediocre show in the back of my mind. Um, when we got to the second episode and they were like fucking in the pool, mm-hmm. and then we just jumped to her on the planet colonizing. Yeah, and I was literally like, "What the? You can't. You can't. This is not a great way to tell a story, David. This is no. This is. I see what Alan's. And then I it was a danger room simulator, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, yes, this makes a lot of sense." Uh, Maybe but you can't. I don't think you can do that. It really throws people. You got to have a way yeah. to, to to throw the plot in a direction and a velocity that people can like catch it on the other side. If it if, mm-hmm. otherwise, they're going to drop the ball and not give a fuck. Yeah, we talk about David Simon's stuff uh, a lot of the time in regards to this, especially like the Deuce, right? Where he'll jump ahead a bunch of years or a year. Yeah. I, I don't know. He's, like, he he sets the ball in motion in and then you pick seasons, it up. Yeah, when you come yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe this is a good time to transition over to book and show differences, um, at least for that first book of foundation, which I read, uh, because the vault is an example of that. Um, okay. Let's give it, let's give people a chance to stop the podcast if they don't want to listen at this point or positive it because yeah, we are going to, again, talk about difference in the book. I don't know if it'll be heavy spoilers, but again, if you haven't read the books, you're probably not interested in this. So fuck off. Sure. Uh, And next week, here's the thing. I I can't like I can't be sympathetic to spoiling books that are almost 100 years old at this point. (laughs) Yeah. However, I can be sympathetic to using book knowledge to potentially ruin a show that people haven't seen yet and it hasn't been made yet. So I'm going to try and like, yeah, whenever we talk about these kind of spoilers, we'll we'll demarcate it. And, and then if this is where right you now. bounce, I just want to let you know, foundation at baldmove.com is where you send in feedback, which we'll start taking next week because yeah. uh, this was a supersized episode. I don't, I don't want to blow it up even further. So foundation of baldmove.com. Uh, and yeah, if you, if you don't care about the books, uh, this is where I'll say goodbye. And we'll see you next week for episode three. By the way, if you uh, I know some people don't like our more thematic kind of like character or whatever based. They like our scene by scene recaps. We're going back to that next week. We just want to do it this way because two yeah. scene by scene things yeah. and it just is just going to be a mess. So next week, we'll start the scene by scene breakdown and analysis thrown in. Uh, all right. The vault. The vault. Uh, the vault is very much a known quantity in the book. Um, the, I recalled it being such. Yes. And it's, it's not. It, so I like the framework here. I like um, it frame, the framing device for episode one is this vault and like the the strange planet. Right. We know that they're going to Terminus, I think, at the end of the first episode. And the Terminus is the place where this vault is. And that one of these characters kind of like, I think it's Gail is narrating this thing and saying like, she didn't know about the vault and all that stuff or any of these names. So it's a framing device and it works well to add a lot of intrigue and mystery to the show. Um, You don't know if you're dealing with an alien presence. You don't know if this is like 
something that the empire uses for control of these systems out of nowhere or what in the book it's a lot less cryptic right it's like mm-hmm. the ghost that they're talking about inside of the vault is harry selden it's just like an image of harry selden um which you know when you when you talk about like salvor harden being sort of the ghost or describing herself as the ghost in the machine here are they going to change it? Are they going to make her be sort of in these vaults instead of Harry? I was being sneaky because I was trying to misdirect the fact that like, I think the ghost in the vault is exactly that it's Harry Seldon. And okay. he, uh, because, cause that's the thing. Like they, they I even know if you picked up on where, something else that I had. No, I, I was just, I just didn't want to get too much into like, Oh yeah, the ghost is just here. You know, like yeah, he's going to sure. pop out as a, as like a, a, a ghost looking translucent hologram It's going to be crazy. Um, and, and the thing about the vault is like he, one of the things he, he, he did know he was dying in the books mm-hmm. and then they kind of flash forward 35 years into Terminus as a colony and he's already yeah. dead. Whether he got assassinated, died of old age, cancer, we don't really know in the books. But one of the reasons, you know, we, we said like the mystery of like, how, uh, is he going to continue to influence the psychohistory project beyond the grave? Well, this you know, it. with his psycho history and he sees much further than than even Gail has at this point. He's and they allude to this in the show that like, oh, this is uh, the, this isn't the Empire's first crisis and it won't be the last. He, oh, has he knows several that it'll last at least 30,000 years. So he's seen very far into the future. Right. Uh, but there's he's got he, like this inflection points in human history that he calls Selden crises. Yeah. And when these things occur where his followers are going to be like, fuck, this wasn't part of the plan. His holograph comes to life and gives them a piece of wisdom or a new piece of information mm-hmm. or some other thing to work on to try to bend the arc back into the direction. Um, so I think, yeah, we're about to we, we might even next episode, if they continue telling this this uh, Salver Harden story, we might see the first of those um inflections yeah yeah it sets him up as like this mythical figure right um the, this larger than life uh, sort of a god but not really and there are a lot of people who like buck against his wisdoms um that come out of this vault and i think yeah a lot of it's it's super interesting what they do but they've set it up nothing like the book did so right because in the book right. like the foundation springs up around these vaults the vaults are like part of their society right and and mm-hmm. you, you get maybe a hint of that here if if uh salvor is able to kind of walk up to one of these things that maybe you know mm-hmm. it's something the foundation controls mm-hmm. um but yeah they have eventually boards of <laughs> essentially boards of directors council members that sort of wait for these vaults to open they right. kind of know when they're going to happen roughly right at least that first one mm-hmm. yeah so um, it's very different here yeah, I'm trying to think of um, the other thing I thought were different from the books. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like. Uh, because, again, this is a lot of allegory to the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, you, you heard uh, uh, Lee Pace, Brother Day, talk about the barbarian kingdoms. And we met met two of these. Uh, what was it? Uh, Anacreon and Anacreon and Thespis. Yeah. Um so the foundation, uh, once the, the central galactic empires begins to fall and they can no longer kind of protect the borders and interests, it's kind of like a wild, wild west. And 
terminus is here with this huge collection of scientists and engineers um, that have like this vast wealth of knowledge and experience. And these barbarian uh, realms uh, are going to take an active interest in the books. I recall them being more of just like, uh, well, they, these are just the, the, the human planets that are out next into us in the outer reaches of the galaxy. I like the idea yeah. that they're more of a central part from the, you know, that they're linchpin. We, we started to see these civilizations. We started to see how they're interacting, dissatisfaction with the empire, all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. before they're going to play a larger part in probably the middle and later parts of these seasons. They've I thought that's a, a much, good change. Much better job. Yeah. The narrative here is so much clearer, so much more connected um, yeah. than the book. The, the book is really a series of vignettes taking place over. I think that first book is at 80 ish years. Um, and it's just like, you know, people in rooms talking and they're very disconnected and you get the sense that they only connect on a meta level where you see the development of the foundation. But yeah, it seems like they're doing a lot more here. And I, I was kind of surprised we didn't do that 35 year jump in the, in the end of this episode where mm. and maybe we do, maybe the death of Harry is like the event that we needed to see that we then jump forward x amount of years and start telling that story but um the death of harry is another wild one because mm-hmm. yeah it happens but we don't know how it happens this is setting a trajectory i mean gail is not a big part of the book at all at all mm-hmm. she's like someone th- who's there to give us insight into what psychohistory is and then leaves right. She's an excuse for Harry Seldon to expound upon the tenets of psychohistory because else why, it, you know, it, it, it's yeah. it involves. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's it gives an in-universe reason for why this guy would just start up an explanation for the science when and, other. Why would else he do that? You know? Yeah. And then I think she's in like the first part of the establishment of the foundation. And then Harden becomes kind of the main Salvor, whose last name is Harden. I don't think they say that in the mm-hmm. show, but. Salvor mm-hmm. is going to become like the main protagonist of the foundation going forward, which right. is also another right. reason that I appreciate the the framing device here because you need to introduce that character. Yeah, I agree. Uh, obviously we talked about the emperors or not like, you know, there is an emperor Cleon, but he is just kind of like a, a minor figure that uh, is mentioned during the trial of Harry this is the head of the emperor, but he, the, the doesn't concern himself. The attack like I said, all that stuff is better, you know, like having these things, mm-hmm. number one, gives you an infusion of action, like, you know, having uh, super soldiers assault a, a, a facility and take out scientists and torture them by severing their spinal cords. That gives the audience like, oh, that's some, that gets your pulse moving. The attack on the yeah. space station, the star bridge, the destruction of Trantor, uh, the, then the the reprisals that they do on the the outer planets, that stuff gives you that much needed kind of like yeah energy to the otherwise interesting but maybe very dry characters and ideas that we've been talking about yeah um Raish is not in the foundation he's in the prequels i understand okay. where he plays a role that's kind of similar to gal in those or gail you got me doing it now yeah sorry. um so like that is interesting how they they're bringing that relationship in here um and like i said Dim- dimmerzel again uh, when he wrote the foundation series, Asimov wasn't thinking about having all these being connected. In fact, the foundation wasn't even a book. It was a series of short stories written over in science fiction novels that got collected 
into parts and then, then those various parts. I think the first foundation series has four different parts, mm-hmm. like the psycho historians. You've got the merch and the emperors and then the fuck face McGee. There's always <laughs> the, the religion, they have these collection of like, yeah, the, the different yeah. things, that, the, the, the different things that go through. Um, whereas this is all like, you know, someone has like, imagine if Asimov was, had a chance to like go back and tell the story from the very beginning. Yeah, uh, he might do something like this where he weaves in some of more of those ideas of like, oh, I, I always wanted to merge the robot series and Empire series with this series. So he would do that stuff. I think David uh, Goya is it Goya? I've forgotten his name. Uh, Goyer, David yeah. S. Goyer. I think he's he's going through and trying to do that right now. Um, yeah. And that, that gives him a, a, a good a good opportunity to get more more character, more human emotion and more action crucially into the series. Yeah. Um, there's also this other character who is not a part of the books, uh, or well, not that I read, um, named Gerald, who's kind of like the liaison to the empire here, um, with Gale. And it (laughs) reminds me a lot. The energy he's got going reminds me just to the T of Dean Stockwell from quantum leap. Right. He's like the dude with the data pad standing next to Scott Bakula going. Yeah, pulling all the strings. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I really, really saw a lot of that energy coming from him. Uh, I don't know what his role is going to be going forward because he's not really part of the book that I read. He seems like it'd be a spy type of role. I wonder if we'll see him, especially now that Gale has been taken off the board. What if he infiltrates the, you guys will know who he is, but I don't think anyone else in the foundation would. So I kind of like, if he's going to go yeah. forward, like being be some kind of secret agent or spy within the, the facility. Um, mm-hmm. Which I can't remember if that's a, is there like, does the Imperial, does the, the Imperium ever try to subvert the foundation? Um, the Empire Man, is f- not a part of that first book other than the trial and right. the exile. So it, it, it falls to shit almost immediately then. Oh, I don't think it does. I think or it's they're fine. just so far away it doesn't. It, yeah, it, it's it, just it, nothing is. Okay. The gotcha, rest of it takes gotcha. place in Terminus and the Four Kingdoms and all that. All right. Um, what else? That's about it. Okay. Well, like I said, I, I was nervous going into this. I actually wasn't until I read the seven wall review and then I got super nervous. But like the first two, and again, the wheels could fall off. This is a this is a tough. Everyone said this was a, 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 going to be a tough adaptation because it's it's got so many big ideas. It's so thin on the characters. It spans so many years. Um, this is going to be that this is one of the last of the unfilmable things, you know, that everyone's always talked about. And then people yeah. film them, you know, like, oh, Lord of the Rings is unfilmable. Game of uh, Game of Thrones unfilmable. Uh, now we've we've got to Foundation. Maybe it is unfilmable. But from what I saw, like I none of the things that seemed to like bug Alan bugged me, and I was really engaged. But then again, I'm also inclined to give hard science fiction a, a pretty wide berth. But I didn't see anything that was Same like here. really cringy or just f- patently absurd. I mean, some people are talking about the the hyperspace pods having their own individual windows as being dumb but i'm like it's a luxury liner man yeah he's got space windows that's it's fine it's fine every every individual crouch uh you know that the emperor wants when you drop out of hyperspace to trantor the first thing you see is his magnificence you know yeah um i i didn't ha- i didn't have a problem with any of the the, the choices other than nitpicks about design elements but no this yeah. is, this thing's like candy to me man i i love sci-fi it's it's 
I, I was noticing when I was looking at how beautiful this was and how cool everything looked and the concepts being realized. Like, you know, I bet this is how people feel about Avengers, right? If you're a big comic mm. book fan sure. and you've always wanted to see Avengers on screen, you're like, God, that right. looks incredible. For yeah. me, it's just like, ah, oh, that's another overblown CG thing. This is my Avengers. Uh, I love sci-fi and it looks incredible. It's a properly blown CGI thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, we will be back next week to see what happens to Harry Seldon and his little project, the foundation, uh, see what happens with that vault and the, the null field. Um, I'm wondering if we will find out immediately what goes on with Gale. I think it would be very jarring if a central figure just gets sideboarded for a lot of the season. So I expect we're not going to yeah. have to think too much longer to see if she comes back. But uh, it's also, man, if you look at the trailer, it's, it's always shocking to me how much of the trailers of these seasons comes out of the first few episodes, but mm-hmm. all, almost all, as far as I could tell, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff came out of the, of the various trailers came out of these first two hours of the television show. Yeah. So it means probably going to be a lot of surprises in store for us, but uh, we'll be back for episode three next week. One, one final reminder, foundation of baldmove.com is where you email your takes for us to consider on the, the, the show. Uh, We'll be back next week with episode three. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.